Welcome to the Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm PI's Senior Campaigns Officer. Hi. So, Caitlin, today we're talking to our colleagues at Privacy International who are doing work about a company named Capita. Tell us a little bit about why we're focusing on Capita. So if you're in the UK, you might have heard a very, <laughs> a fairly rude epithet for Capita playing on their name, suggesting maybe they're not the best company in the world. And we certainly aren't fond of them. And if you follow us on social media, which you definitely should and you can, or you signed up to our mailing list, which you definitely should and you can, then you might already have heard we've launched a campaign looking at the way that Capita facilitates the GPS tagging of migrants in the UK by the Home Office. We are not fond of this practice, I think it's fair to say. And we'll be taking you through, you know, talking to our various colleagues, talking to Lucy, who runs the project for the campaign, talking to our colleague Elliot, who tried on one of the GPS tags, and our colleague Harmit, who rocked up at Capita's AGM last week to give him a yell about why we have a problem with the program, why we have a problem with Capita, and yeah, really what people can do about it. And so this is going to be a conversation about the tagging of migrants and the use of technology as a punishment. Functionally, yeah. So there will be language around the fact that it is a form of psychological torture. Yeah, when we say psychological torture, you'll hear a bit more about it as we talk to Lucy. We're not screwing around. Uh, It's a quote from one of the migrants who've been tagged with one of these GPS tagging devices. And for a lot of people coming to this country and uh, you know, participating in the Home Office's migration and asylum processes, torture it may not be entirely unfamiliar. Like some of these people have direct experience of literal torture. Uh, so when we say psychological torture, we're not being melodramatic. And it is brutal and capita are making a lot of money facilitating this process. If you're a new follower, a new listener, you might be surprised to hear us be talking about migration and migrants' rights. But PI has been working on these issues for at least 15 or 20 years now. For a long period of time, we worked quite a bit with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, looking at their practices in refugee camps in Asia and Eastern Africa, visiting and doing research and engaging with the uh, refugee population around the use of fingerprinting and other forms of biometrics that were again being used as a form of punishment in the post 9-11 era where we couldn't possibly trust migrants and their stories. And so yet again, we're in this era where the migrant is the suspect population that must be targeted. And yet again, governments, and as listeners to this podcast know that we're no fan of the UK government and its home office that leads, well, competes to lead the world in cruelty on immigration policy. And so you're going to be hearing a lot of the details around what that actually means. So first up, we're going to talk to Lucy. Lucy runs our project on migration, and it's her project that this campaign sits within. Lucy, in just a second, is going to talk a bit more about Capita and the GPS tagging program.
So my name is Lucy. I'm a legal officer at PI. I manage our project on the surveillance of migrant communities. And we're here today to talk about a campaign we are building against Capita PLC. The contract with the UK government, with the Ministry of Justice, that is used by the Home Office to support GPS tracking migrants in the UK. When the tag was fitted, they said it's not a curfew. We're not restricting your movement. We're following your movement. Somehow I feel restricted because of the charging. I cannot go far. It's torture. I don't want my daughter to know about it. She's too young. When it starts to run out of battery, it beeps. And she says, Dad, what's that? I paid my taxes. I felt at home. I loved this country. I don't feel like I belong anymore. So what we've just heard is the testimony of a real person who has been tagged by the Home Office. They've shared their testimonies with our partners, Bail for Immigration Detainees, and we've hired an actor to reenact these testimonies on video. You can check out our website to see the full video. Cool. So what's the Home Office actually doing? What the Home Office does is when someone is released from immigration detention, they decide to grant them bail, which is like you're released from detention. It's okay for you to be free. But you're not actually going to be completely free because we are going to impose some conditions on your so-called freedom. And one of these conditions can be that you are electronically monitored. They used to have these sort of ankle tags that measured the distance between the person's home and the tag, which would only be able to tell if the person was at home or not. So, for example, to enforce a curfew condition. But now they have this new shiny tech called GPS tags that monitor someone's precise location every minute of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they do that supposedly in order to monitor people's compliance with their bail conditions, to prevent them from absconding. But also, they've granted themselves the right, not in law, but in kind of their own policy, to use the data from you know, a person's location history in order to make decisions on their immigration applications. So sometimes people can you know, make claims or request that they shouldn't be deported and they should have a right to be in the UK based on their right to private and family life. And what the Home Office does is it says, well, I'm going to look through that data to see if your claims are true or not. And they don't give an opportunity for people to use that data in the same way. So when you say bail, like, what do you mean? What's the bail condition? Bail means when someone's released from detention, it's it's a concept that also exists in the criminal justice system. And so here we're talking about immigration detention. Yeah, that's where I know it. <laughs> so when someone's released from prison or from detention, we say they're released on bail. So you're released from prison or from detention, but only according to certain conditions. So these conditions can be, you know, in the movies, it's often like, oh, you have to pay a price. Or it can be you have a curfew, so you can't go out at night between 
8 p.m. and 8 a.m. or something like that. The kind of like 2023 digital equivalent is electronic monitoring through GPS ankle tags. You know, in the criminal justice sector, you need a pretty high threshold of someone posing a risk to society in order to tag them. In the immigration enforcement, there's very little. It seems to be more based on they exist, but they're not yes. from here rather than a yes, specific exactly. risk assessment. Yeah. And it's not okay for these tags to exist in the criminal justice market. It's not okay anywhere. But the government is rolling them out in a completely unhinged way in the immigration enforcement context. And why might an immigrant or an asylum seeker in the UK be detained? Like, what are the conditions for that? There are all kinds of conditions under which you can be detained. The way that the UK has kind of made the legislation stricter and stricter means that basically anyone who comes to the UK trying to seek asylum can in some ways be detained at some point. The purpose of detention on paper is to prevent people from disappearing into the wild because the government thinks that happens. So they put them in these horrendous detention centers that are overcrowded, where conditions are absolutely horrid, and they keep them here while their claims to asylum or some other form of immigration status are being processed. And GPS tags are now used as what they call an alternative to this immigration detention. So if they think someone doesn't pose risk that's serious enough to justify detaining them or you know the court has said that it was disproportionate to detain them because it's horrible conditions then they will put them on these gps tags so it sounds like the home office is doing it because they're getting in too much trouble for detaining people in horrific immigration facilities i mean they don't do it because they don't want to detain people in horrific conditions they'll keep detaining people in horrific conditions, they'll just expand the size of the state-controlled population. So they don't have the space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't have enough space to, to hold everyone. So they're like, oh, well, just, just expand the ways that we're able to monitor and control them. And there is no end date, is there? Like if your immigration application is being processed, yeah. it's not like you have a timeline and a deadline and a clear... There's no legal limit to how long you can be tagged. It can be as long as your immigration application is being processed. But the policy says the Home Office is meant to review your tagging condition every three months. The thing is that doesn't happen. The report by Bail for Immigration Detainees and Public Law Project shows quite well that in so many cases, these reviews are just not performed. And even if they were, you could have it reviewed every three months for the next 10 years exactly there's nothing that says you can't and i do think there is a psychological difference in i must wear a tag for the next three months versus i have to wear a tag indefinitely yeah and that affects people's family relationships it affects their relationships with their children with their friends some people report just having not gone out of their house for months because they just don't want the social stigma of it it's yeah terrible and what are the actual, what are the tags, I guess? So there's two types of tags that are being used at the moment. There's ankle tags, which are literally just kind of bracelet that's attached to your ankle. You can't remove it. It's what we call fitted devices. And inside of them is a SIM card in order to detect and track someone's DPS location. The other type is a sort of portable device that is not attached to you. So you can 
be removed from it. However, it will beep or vibrate or notify you up to five times a day at random times in the day that you have to submit a fingerprint scan. And that's to ensure that you're actually wearing or carrying the device at all times. And they consider this to be a more proportionate, less invasive way of tagging people, which I find slightly mad because people get you know, notified when they're in the shower or sometimes at night and they have like one minute to run to their device and submit a fingerprint scan. So I don't know how that's more proportionate. So if you sleep through the alarm, you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. If you don't submit a fingerprint scan, then that's an automatic breach of your bail conditions. (laughs) So if you're a heavy sleeper, you could be heading back to immigration detention. Yeah, pretty much. I once slept through a fire (laughs) alarm. Like, that's crazy. Wow. (laughs) That's just insane. So it sounds like we have a pretty clear issue with them being incredibly invasive. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want to describe a bit more how invasive they are? Yeah, for sure. There's an incredible report by Bail for Immigration Detainees, Public Plot Project and Medical Justice that sets out in horrific detail all the physical and mental health impacts of these tags on people. Some have described it as an open-air prison, Some have reported feeling suicidal. Some have reported it feeling like torture. It's absolutely not a more humane way of controlling and monitoring people because you're subjecting them to 24-hour surveillance, making them aware that the state that is kind of trying to find any reason to deport them or to not grant them immigration status, that state has the power to look through every single minute of their daily movements and decide whether what they do every day is suitable for our, you know, precious, pristine country. So it is probably the most invasive and debilitating forms of surveillance that the state could do on you because they hold so much power over you. They hold power over your, over your entire life. Their decision will, you know, determine whether you're sent back to an unsafe place, whether you have to try and build a new life somewhere else, whether you're going to be separated from your family, from your kids, from your parents. Huge, huge decisions are going to be made by this hostile government, potentially based on the surveillance of your daily life. And that's terrifying. And some of the places people could be sent back to are active war zones, are places they've been tortured. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the people that the government wants to subject to this kind of surveillance will already have been under surveillance and some may have been already been tortured. Absolutely. And re-traumatizing them. Exactly. They've tagged people who are recognized victims of trafficking, of torture. It's it's absolutely horrific. And the thing is they, they use all these means of surveillance and not just the GPS tags, but the kind of extreme invasive scrutiny of these people's lives and their previous lives and their current lives in order to find flaws in their stories and to find reasons not to have them here. And it's traumatizing, especially when you've been on one of the most traumatizing journeys to safety and suddenly you don't feel safe anymore. Are they tagging children? No, they're not tagging children. But they're tagging people that they believe to be over 18? Yes, exactly. And age assessments are a whole other problem. That's why I was thinking, because the who the Home Office believed to be over the age of 18 isn't always the same as 
who are actually over the age of 18. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, some of the invasive looking through people's lives is so not counterproductive, that's not the right word, but I remember looking at immigration detention with the LGBTQ stuff. Some of the questions people were being asked about their previous lives in other countries had been things like, oh, well, you can't be gay. You've never had a boyfriend before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in a country actively hostile to homosexuality in which if I had a boyfriend, I could have been killed. Yeah. Like, that's not evidence I'm not gay. (laughs) That's crazy. This is exactly the problem with what we call social media intelligence and the ways that immigration authorities will par through your social media accounts to check your claims that you were, you know, either persecuted or that you were a homosexual in your country of origin and therefore cannot be sent back because this country criminalizes homosexuality. The problem is that a lot of people will use social media in a way that we don't necessarily understand or doesn't reflect reality because specifically if you're a homosexual in a country that criminalizes homosexuality, you don't want your social media to show that you are a homosexual. So why on earth are they using that as evidence against you? I'm trying to find a segue into asking about the racism stuff that doesn't throw people from Ukraine under the bus. And I'm Hmm. struggling. But they're not tagging people from Ukraine, are they? They could. They could tag anyone who's not a British citizen, in theory. But they're tagging some people more than others. Exactly. The evidence shows that certain nationalities are getting tagged more than others. I mean, it's, you know, the racialized surveillance problem is a problem even beyond the immigration enforcement context. Okay, so the campaign's aimed at Capita. If the Home Office is the problem, why are we yelling at Capita? Right. So the reason why we're going after Capita, and that doesn't mean we're not going after the government as well. We have complaints against them and we're supporting individual litigation efforts against the government when by tax people. But we are also going after Capita because we believe they have a responsibility as a company that purports to be a responsible business to think about the human rights implications of the contracts it takes on. So we know that in recent years, governments have become more and more interested in procuring the services of surveillance and tech companies in order to do their dirty work. It's an easy way to either you know, exploit new kinds of technologies that are more and more invasive and to shield yourself away from scrutiny and questioning about what you're doing. Because when a company is contracted to deliver a public service through its the use of its own tech or is used in order to make decisions through algorithms or things like that, well, it's much easier for the government to say, well, we, we won't disclose any information about this because it's all protected by the company's commercial secrets or intellectual property, things like that. And so in this instance, Capita has been contracted by the Ministry of Justice for years in order to run what they call electronic monitoring services, which is kind of the front for Capita to run the whole tagging system, basically. So Capita is the company whose staff is sent to people's houses in order to fit the tags on their ankles. It's the company that has all the servers where the location data is collected, stored, processed. And it is basically the company that people interact with the most when they're being tagged. And so we wrote to Capita because we had a number of concerns about the, obviously, the human rights compliance of 
this practice, the data protection implications of this practice as well, because we, we've seen very little safeguards around it. And they replied to us that they delivered this contract with care and empathy was their only response. And having spoken to and heard from a lot of people who've been tagged, we just don't see how it is possible to deliver this with care and empathy. It is a profoundly traumatizing practice that we think if Capita was upholding the values that it claims to pursue, should not have taken on. And so we're asking them to drop this contract or at least refuse providing these services to the Home Office anymore. And if people want to join us in asking that, they can do that, right? Absolutely. We set up a web page where people can write a template email to Capita where they can ask Capita to have a look at the videos of people's testimonies, to hear what the concerns are, to hear the words of people who suffer through this 24-hour surveillance every day, um, and hopefully to realize that it might not be a government policy they want any part in. How much did Capita make? Do we know how much Capita's made? Yeah, we do. They make roughly £38 million a year off of the contract. They've made hundreds of millions already, and the contract is not over yet, so they will continue making money of it. I, I should say it's $38 million for the whole contract with the Ministry of Justice, so that's it's not just immigration enforcement. And we don't know what the exact split is, but it's, it's still huge, and we, and we know we, we've seen statistics that show that the tagging numbers have massively increased in recent years, and that has been almost exclusively driven by the spike of tagging in immigration enforcement. Right. So they're making money off of human suffering. Yeah, pretty much. How much is the Ministry of Justice involved as compared to the Home Office? Like, is it just their contract because of the prison aspect? It is a contract with the Ministry of Justice originally because tagging didn't exist in immigration enforcement before. So it started in the criminal justice context and then suddenly the Home Office was like, oh, that's a cool thing. Let's try it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I guess for kind of sourcing and and contracting purposes, it was easier for the Home Office to just have a memorandum of understanding with the Ministry of Justice saying we can use your stuff. But it's very much the same system. So it's just run under one kind of government to So it's pretty unpleasant to wear one of these tags, right? Well, we figured it probably was. And so we decided to do a real life experiment where two of our technologists bought some tags from the open market and wore them for about a month in order to see what kind of data it was collecting and to see what life was with these tags. And so we found that obviously collects a massive amount of data. I can't remember what the exact number is, but it's something like hundreds of thousands of Excel spreadsheets were filled out with just a month of data. And it was pretty unpleasant and felt pretty stigmatizing. And obviously, you know, they weren't made subject to wearing this tag. So the feeling must be very different. They're not from racialized communities and they still felt the stigma. So I can't even imagine what it's like for people who are actually made to wear these tags. Cool. And in a sec, we'll talk to Elliot, who was wearing one of the tags for PI, about his experience and the data we gathered on him specifically.
Hi, I'm Elliot Benginelli. I'm a senior technologist at Privacy International. I'm also the director for Corporate Exploitation Program, and I've worked on the migration project and more specifically with GPS ankle tags. I mean, you've worked extremely closely with GPS ankle tags. Yeah, yeah. So close, in fact, that I wore one for quite a while, actually. How long did you end up wearing it for? I can't remember exactly. I had the tag for about a month and a half, I think. I didn't wear it all the time because it was uncomfortable, among other things, and it had a very... The battery wouldn't last very long. But I'd say, like, out of this month and a half, probably, like, three weeks, four weeks. And you did it with one of our other technologists, right? It was the two of you both were wearing different ankle tags. Exactly, yeah. We had different models, and uh, we did that at the same time. Like, where did you get ankle tags from? We got them from AliExpress because that was kind of the one of the only places where we could get one. We looked at all of the major marketplaces, but obviously when you're looking for tech and more specifically for dodgy tech, AliExpress is kind of the place where you can find everything. Yeah, we had a few options. We kind of scouted kind of what capabilities different tags could have and what they were marketed for. And we just ended up buying two very different tags in terms of the features they had and the size and weight as well. What features did yours have? So mine was the lighter one. It wasn't really fancy. It's pretty basic in terms of what it could do, but it, it had all the basics. You would put a SIM card in it, attach it to an ankle, and then it would share all of your location data with a server. But on the back end, so when you wanted to access the location data, it was pretty bearable. And you just had location, time, battery charge, and some basic alerts. The only other feature it had was that, well, it would send SMS to the registered authorities. So if I unclipped it, I would receive an SMS telling me that the belt was unlocked. Same with low battery. And it actually had a microphone, which was really creepy so you could you can actually call this tag and it automatically picks up and then the caller can hear everything that's going on around the tag and the wearer is not aware as far as i'm aware this is not something that exists on tags that are deployed by the uk government but it's a feature it could be it's an available option exactly and so like in the tags that are deployed by the home office, the authority would be the home office, right? It would be calling the home office or texting the home office and saying, you know, Elliot unclipped his tag, Elliot's battery's low. I actually don't know the answer to that. It could Oh, maybe be, I suppose it would be Capita. Uh, yeah, that's what I was about to say. It could be Capita, it could be the home office, it could be Capita first, and then the information is transferred to the home office depending on importance. But we don't know. No. Like, why? Why did you decide to do it? What was the conversations like when you decided to buy some ankle tags and give it a go. <laughs> I think the starting point was that there is a lot of secrecy around this sort of technology that's deployed by the government. And it's always hard to get information. So, you know, you can get access to procurement contract and this sort of stuff and get a sense of what are the requirements from the government for the company that's going to provide the device. But you still have limited information. So that was one thing. And the other thing is we don't want to base our work on assumptions that, yeah, theoretically, that's how a tag would work. It's better to have like first an access and be able to test it, look at the data it's producing, look at how one would use it, what kind of inference you could make. And so, yeah, the idea was really let's get our hands on one and, and experiment and experience what it is to 
both be a tag wearer and had access to all of the data it produces. And what is it like being a tag wearer? I mean, I feel I'm not qualified to answer this. I always had the means to remove the tag at any time. So, you know, this it's not for me to say that it's sure I could feel it was stigmatizing and it can be uncomfortable. But again, I was in a privileged position where I could just remove it. So I don't feel like my experience here has a lot of value. Well, I mean, it doesn't in the fact that you're right, you can remove it, you know when the project's going to end, you could end the project at any time, and you're not paranoid about any of your decisions leading to your removal from the country. Mm. So I think emotionally, <laughs> it is fairly different. But physically, you know, what is it physically like wearing a tag like that? I mean, for me, physically, like one of the kind of turning point was when I had to, like it was starting to be a bit sunny and warm outside and I wanted to wear shorts. I'm like, oh, this is going to be visible now. You know, it's not just hidden under my pants and nobody's going to notice. I'm actually going to go outside and people are going to see it. So that's kind of on the stigmatizing part. On the wearing side, it could get annoying. I felt there wasn't a good setting in terms of how tight it was. So it was either really tight and painful or it would be a bit loose. And and then the belt was also very long. So it would just dangle around and it just ended up being annoying. I didn't try to go running with it, but I don't think doing any physical activity would have been comfortable. I did climbing actually, and it was, it wasn't the best. It's just you you can feel it there, and I was worried I would knock it off, or yeah, it wasn't the best. And then, how did you charge it? Did you try and charge it while it was on you, or yeah. did you not? No, no, I did. I did that a few times. I mean, I, eventually, you know, once I've experienced that a few times, I was like, "All right, I'm done. This is annoying. I don't want to do it anymore." There's, you know, there's no value for uh, added value for the project. But yeah, I would usually just do it at my desk when I was working on the computer or playing or doing anything. But yeah, I was physically attached to the computer and just had to wait. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the great. Did it have a long battery life? No. So mine, it might be because of the way I set it up. It was sending location data every 30 seconds. And that meant I had a battery life of about 18 to 20 hours. So I had to charge it once a day. I know that Chris, who's the other technologist who was going to wear the tag, <laughs> was thinking for a while about trying to set up like a second strap so he could strap a battery pack to his leg so it could charge <laughs> that way. Because it's like if it's not removable, yeah. then you've got to hope that the charger is long enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. The charging cable on mine was really short, so I ended up using like a some sort of USB adapter just so that I could get an extra meter from a computer because it was. I think the cable was probably a meter and a half, which is really short. Obviously, your colleagues are not going to be removing you from the country on the basis of the decisions you're making um, <laughs> or threatening to remove you from the country on the basis of the decisions you're making. But what was it like knowing like, you intended to share the data that you were getting from your ankle tag? Obviously, you could turn it off, but like, did it still influence the choices that you made? It, it did, for sure, yeah. I think I was kind of always conscious about... It's, it's a weird thing, and it's nowhere near what you know a some someone actually tag would experience but it was always about oh 
my colleagues are going to see that, I don't know, I went to the corner shop quite often, or like this week I went out to the pub three times, or that I actually didn't do anything this week and I didn't move out of the house. And okay, maybe I could have not been wearing the tag, but I mean, there was a bit of bias in the sense that I wanted to produce data, obviously, as a technologist to have access to this data and see what it looked like. But yeah, there was always this, hmm, someone is going to look at it. So yeah, maybe maybe remove it when I'm doing certain things. Maybe yeah, it was it was always on my mind. And like for additional context for listeners, my initial plan for like this segment, so I was going to look at all the data and like ask you probing questions, <laughs> but it felt so uncomfortable and intrusive that I messaged Elliot before the recording, like, would it be okay if I did this? Because I don't like the idea. <laughs> of being like you went to the pub three times is that normal for you because ew it's just it's just creepy even though you know we're friends been friends a long time like yeah yeah yeah. it gives a lot of insight into one's life just the location and the worst thing is it gives like obfuscated insights like you can you think you can get a sense of what the person was doing and Mm. what all of the data means and what it translates into real life but you actually don't you have no idea like if I'm going to a place that looks like a corner shop on Google Map, maybe I'm going just right next door to do my laundry. You have no idea. One example from the data that is quite interesting in terms of that was you went to the Royal Courts of Justice. I presume you went to the Royal Courts of Justice for the same reason that I went to the Royal Courts of Justice, which is to observe the MI5 proceedings from our court case with MI5. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if someone who didn't know you or wasn't a part of PI didn't also go to the Royal Courts of Justice, a court case if you're interested in, we have a podcast about, but would look pretty potentially sketchy, even though the Royal Courts of Justice are open for anyone to go and observe court cases in. Yeah, no, totally. That's a really good example of how you can infer different information from the same data. And then the tag glitched, like not infrequently, right? Yeah, the two main thing that happened was when sometime I would stay home and not move, but because the tag, basically the tag has mislocated me and I live near a body of water and it would think I'm on the other side of the water. And if I was not moving enough in the house, the tag would just be, well, this person is not moving. And so it would register my location as being on the other side of the water for hours at time when I was actually home, which can be super problematic, obviously. And the other thing is sometime it would just put a location point outside of where I was actually. So if I was going from point A to point B, straight line, sometimes there were some recordings of my location being like I had taken this, a very fast detour by the next street. <laughs> yeah, I think there was at least one where it thought you'd swum home through the canal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That happened a lot as well. <laughs> but I mean, like if you're under any number of conditions that you might be if you're given one of these tags you know as a migrant like for example a curfew Uh your tag thinking you're across a body of water from where you actually are could be pretty significantly damaging and i mean at least once it completely lost signal right yeah i went to a concert which was kind of it wasn't even like underground or anything it was just a concert hall in the city next to a pub, but they had absolutely no signal in there. I didn't know when I went. It's just when I was inside the room, I could see that my phone had no signal. And so when I went back home, I checked the data and yeah, for the whole two or three hours I was there, I basically disappeared. So the interesting thing here is that 
in theory, if the tag lose signal, but it still captures GPS data, it can sense the data once it's back on the network. But the thing is, obviously, when you're in a room that doesn't even get network signal, you're never going to get any sort of GPS signal because GPS works with line of sight. It's literally like your tag should be able to receive whatever a satellite emits. So the more walls and, and roof there are between you and the satellite, the less likely it's going to work. So yeah, I disappeared for two or three hours, which again, in, in a completely different context could have been bad. Yeah, I mean, you really don't want to disappear for two or three hours and then trigger something within some system that says you jump bail. Mm-hmm. Like that's as many of these situations are completely normal situations you had no idea you were walking into could be catastrophic like being at home for hours being asleep and not noticing the battery's dead you know going to a concert not realizing you don't have signal because you would have to be constantly aware of do i have no signal in this new place i've moved to do i have signal in this new place i've moved to yeah you know and and you have to understand how it works as well like like i said when i went to the concert i immediately thought okay my tag is not going to register anything that's going to be interesting but if you don't know and you're just like, oh, I don't have signal here. Yeah, you're exposing yourself to something bad without even really knowing. Yeah, just moving around <laughs> at any given moment could yeah. completely screw you. Exactly. With absolutely no way of knowing that that's the case. It's just... It's terrifying. Enraging, yes. Terrifying is a good word. You know, it's not only about where you are and you don't have access to signal. It could be, oh, there's a you know, failure on three doesn't have network coverage in this area for the next hour and then you're screwed oh yeah i grew up in east anglia and Uh east anglia is or at least it was at the time in the early noughties late 90s terrible for phone signal like (laughs) vodafone was your best shout and even then like it was famously extremely bad and it's not connected to your phone right like it's connected to its own it's just a sim card and the network so you have no way of knowing what network it is no, you don't know what SIM card is in your tag. So you might have signal with your phone on three, but your SIM card is actually on Vodafone and you don't have signal. And as well, like, you know, I knew that because I grew up in East Anglia and because I had phones from, I can't remember how old I was when I got my first phone, like 11. And because, you know, my parents talked about it, whatever. But that's very hyper-specific local knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a migrant and you've just come to this country from any number of places, Afghanistan, you're not going to be up on the intricacies of local signal mm. coverage. Yeah. And even if you were, it's not like you can say to Capita, well, I've got family <laughs> in East Anglia, that's where I'm going to be staying. Like, can you please make sure that yeah. <laughs> the, the, the GPS tag that you're fitting me with will have coverage in? I know, it's insane. <laughs> it really is. It's one of those things. It's the lack of interest or care that always gets to me. It's the same, you know, quite a few of the systems that we've looked at it's uh-huh. like anyone who's ever an edge case and the edges in this case are extremely large most people will be some form of edge case but if you're ever on the edges of anything then it's systems like this that don't allow for individual circumstances mistakes issues in the system anything like that that cause so much pain and hardship for people and, you know, you can understand why the tags have been described as psychological torture. And that's coming from people who may well have been subject to yeah. torture. Like, it's not an idle comparison. 
Mm-hmm. I think to a certain extent, it's it's on purpose. It's yeah. You know, it's it's really it's fine if the data is incorrect. It's actually it's fine if it's painful for people to wear it, and if the data might be inaccurate because it's just the more proof we can use against them. Yeah, it's set up to be cruel. <sighs> so the long and the short of it, you would not be recommending tags to people. No, no, definitely not. I had no idea immigration would come in to fit the tag. Just by luck I was in at the time. I'm homegrown. I've been here since I was a baby. I went to prison and and I did my time, but but now they want to deport me and I'd spend another six months locked up because of the home office. I find the whole process really invasive. I was told I had to let them into my home. But on my rights in this situation, I get more scrutiny in public. I'm allowed to work, but I've tried to apply for a few jobs and nothing. I even tried to volunteer at a charity shop and he looked at my tag and just wrote me off. Every time I call, they put me on hold for like 10 minutes. And then they just hang up the phone. This has happened like 30 times in a row now. The stereotypes just flashing before everyone's eyes. Hi, I'm Harmit. I'm the campaign's director at Privacy International. And I'm uh, going to be talking a bit about uh, the stunt we did outside Capita's offices last week. Perfect introduction. So what was the stunt that you did? (laughs) Well, the objective of the stunt and more broadly of our campaign is to embarrass Capita. We want to shine a spotlight on their profiting from the hostile environment. And the challenge here is that Capita isn't a well-known company. So how do you help them? How do you embarrass them? How do you get to them? And what we felt was that two-pronged. One was our kind of parody campaign, which is playing out on social media, parodying their brand, parodying their logo, parodying some of their kind of statements about the kind of company uh, and about the purpose-driven kind of company they are. But the particular thing last week was embarrassment through a spectacle, a public spectacle outside their office and timed for what I'd hope would be the most embarrassing possible date in the year, which is the date of their AGM, the date that you know the biggest shareholders will be coming to their office. So we were there outside their office as we hope the shareholders were roaming. I mean, we don't know what any of these shareholders look like, by the way. But you know, we saw a lot of people in suits, looking very smart, looking very serious. Some being driven, you know, having their car door opened for them. So, you know, to me, that means VIP. So, you know, we were keen to get leaflets into those people's hands and for them to see our placards. And a particular thing we did to create a sense of spectacle, we wanted to elevate it beyond leaflets and placards. So we hired a mobile LED van, which circled around that area. I mean, the, 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 the driver was fantastic. He must have done a circuit like 50, 60, maybe 100 times, I don't know, around that area, with a big billboard. One of them said, you know, hey, Capita, you know, uh, stop GPS tracking migrants. We wanted 
captor to see that. We want captor shareholders to see that. And we want members of the public to see that. And our key message is like, stop profiting from the hostile environment. You know, this is the crux of it all. They are making money from a pernicious government policy. And we feel corporations, particularly those that claim to be purpose-driven, companies particularly that make grandstanding statements about how Black Lives Matter and that they care, that they've got a responsibility as a corporation, we need to hold their feet to the fire. We need to make them accountable. You can't get away with making these claims and then just not follow through on it. And how did it go? You know, what, what was it like standing outside their AGM? It was good. <laughs> it, was, it, it was fun. <laughs> and, you know, what, what I really like about stunts or this kind of stunt was that it really does give you an opportunity to engage with people, right? So there were I think five or six of us across the three coalition partners. That's us, Prips International, Migrants Organize, and Bail for Immigration Detainees. We're the three organizations that are running this campaign. We wanted to make sure, even though it's a very serious campaign, even though the issue is very serious, for us tonally, it was important that you know it wasn't an aggressive stunt. You know, we want to talk to people about it. We want to talk to the public about it. We want to talk to capital staff about this, right? About this issue. So we had smiles on our faces. We wanted to chat to people. We were giving them leaflets. We approached people. People approached us. And that was wonderful. That was fantastic. And actually, we got overwhelmingly supportive remarks. There were one or two people. I mean, this is in the city of London, a lot of suits, right? who, you know, were very supportive of what the government are doing and of what capital are doing, even though they don't necessarily know any anything in any detail. But on, on that superficial level, they were kind of supportive of any kind of draconian policies that impact on migrants. But overall, the temperature gauge we got was very warm. And that's really important as well. While, you know, a lot of our work and a lot of our campaigning plays out on social media and Yes, social media is meant to be interactive. Yes, you are supposed to, and we do try to engage with people, but it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same of, of talking to people in the street and having an actual conversation. On social media, you can be in your own bubble, right? So the people you reach primarily are the people who follow you, and the people who follow you probably are fairly supportive of you. You have no idea about that when you go into public space. You just don't know. So that was really validating for us that we had these really good interactions so i'd like us i'd like pi i'd like more organizations to do more public space work you know i think over the last decade or so there's been a much bigger shift towards online campaigning and that's great it's important but i think where it coexists with going out and actually interacting with people i think it adds a whole other dimension to it and a sense of validation, I hope, and attraction. You know, we it drew a lot of attraction to us, both in terms of, you know, people seeing the stamp, but also people then going and taking the action and writing to capital, which is what we were inviting people to do. Speaking of which, so if people, you know, they listen to the podcast and they decide that sounds terrible and I want to do something about it, what can they do? Obviously, they can't come to Capita's AGM till <laughs> next year, but that's right. You know, if you follow us on social media, we're still sharing a lot of content and we're linking to our campaign action. I won't give you the long URL here, here and now. It will be in the description for anyone yeah. listening. Check but, the description. Exactly, right. It will take you literally two minutes to send a letter 
to Capita expressing your concerns about GPS tracking of migrants. And let's be really frank about this. It's ineffective, it's punitive, it's costly. There is no good reason to be doing this other than, in my opinion, it's posturing. It's to show this is a hostile environment. Therefore, we will do hostile things to these people. There is no reason beyond that that I can see that merits GPS tagging people 24-7. So please do support our campaign. Please do visit the campaign page. Please do take those two minutes to sign up. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. That was a hard episode. Yeah, we're not fond of this program. Let's put it that way. As I'm sure you could tell from some of the things that you know we talked about with Lucy about how psychologically damaging, how harmful, how cruel this process is, this policy is, how brutal it can be for the people who are being GPS tagged, whose every movement could be scrutinized by the Home Office to prevent them from getting approved as an asylum seeker or getting allowed to stay, essentially. You know, we have from Elliot how even without that threat, you know, his status in the UK is secure, even knowing that he could turn it off, that the only people likely to see his data would be the people he shared it with, his colleagues that he was making a decision to share it with, still altered his behavior, still found it stressful, still, you know, found it stigmatizing. But the good news is, you know, as we spoke a bit about with Harmit, we are doing things about it and there are things that you can do as well. So if you want to join us and send Capita an email expressing your displeasure, please, 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 please do. It should take you about two minutes, hopefully, and you can find the tool we've set up to do that at pvcy.org forward slash GPS action, which will be in the description bar below as will all the links to all the materials for this campaign be. And if you are living in another country, another part of the world where you have a government that is considering this type of policy, please get in touch with us. Generally, you can get in touch with us telling us what you think about this podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. And you can also sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org slash pod sign up. And as ever, we'll include some links to the relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening and on our website, pvcy.org slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music courtesy of Sepia. This podcast was produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.